Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. This week, we're going to read a parable about what do we do if he says something? What do we do with the things that Jesus has to say? With his words, uh, how do we consider them? And so I'm going to read the text, and then we'll get started. The same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. The whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying... Also, I love this parable because he has, doesn't tell them what he's talking about. He says, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus then explains the parable several verses later. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what has been sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. But then tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, and immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, in another thirty. Grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words. Uh, You give us an image and a story to consider how we listen to you. And uh, when we hear your words, they're frustrating. Sometimes they're memorable, sometimes they're not. Um, But I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have to teach us, that we would consider your words deeply, and that by the power of your Holy Spirit we would be changed. In your name we pray, amen. Um, All right, who's ever seen this before? All right, where, Randy, where have you seen it? Undergrad advisor. Undergrad advisor, Evan. Seven habits for highly successful teens. <laughs> for highly successful teens? That's a very specific one. There is, y'all heard of the seven habits of highly successful people? Glad to know there's a teen version. Um, might need those for my teens. So Stephen Covey is the writer of that book, and he's actually riffing on this. This is originally attributed to Eisenhower, uh, and it's just kind of everything in your life falls into one of these four categories. Things that are important and urgent, unimportant and urgent, important and not urgent, and unimportant and not urgent. And um, I I just kind of, I didn't know about this or hear about this a couple of weeks ago, and a friend began to talk to me about it. And uh, he's a a hedge fund manager in Palo Alto, and we were lifting weights. And, uh, which, don't you love all those details? I do. Um... And the thing about this quadrant is you really never have to talk about this. This is obvious. This is crises. This is when there's bleeding and ambulances and 911 and sleeplessness involved. This quadrant, you don't ever have to talk or figure out or discuss. That one's handled. Um, this one's kind of terrifying. And he, said, he was telling me, he said, like, the real battle is the relationship between unimportant urgent 
and important and not urgent. And that the most successful people in life and the people who kind of fulfill all of their potential spend all of their time up here and have the capacity to discern the difference between these two quadrants. Like, so things like in this quadrant are considering character formation, right? Things, something that's important but not urgent, right, is not eating fries one day, right? Because you can always stop eating french fries tomorrow, right? It's never urgent to stop, but it's kind of important because a lifestyle of fries literally kills you, right? (laughs) So things like not eating fries, things like squatting go up here. Squatting is a really important lift that strengthens the entire body. Things like french fries and bicep curls go down here. Bicep curls feel really important, or they feel really urgent, but they're basically meaningless, right? So y'all see where I'm going. If you Want to fight with me over that? Like, we'll talk afterwards. I am a licensed CrossFit trainer. So, just saying. Yeah, I have to repent about all that boasting afterwards. In this parable, Jesus is comparing his words to seeds. And he does that all throughout the Gospels. He's saying, my words, the words of the kingdom, are like seeds. And here's the thing about seeds, and Jesus concedes this. Seeds never feel urgent. They don't look urgent. They don't move with urgency. But they're the most important thing you tend to because they make you who you are. They produce fruit. They build forest. But only if you intend to them every day but it will never feel urgent. You'll never worry about a seed on a single day. Right? And what he says in this parable is he says, there are three ways you might miss it. There are three ways that you might avoid this quadrant altogether and spend a lot of time in the other three and never become who you're intended to be. And so what we're going to talk about a little bit is how to listen, consider the three warnings, the three soils, And then what is he saying? And kind of what does it begin to look like to actually live in that quadrant to give time and energy and resources to something that is important but will never feel feel urgent? So the first thing he says, here's one way you can miss it. There's the hard soil. The text says this is the one who hears but doesn't understand. And I think there are two different ways that we can consider or understand the hard soil. The first is there might not be any retention or any impact, right? You hear God's word, you read God's word, and he says you hear but you don't understand. There's a difference between hearing and transformation. Right? This happened earlier today. I don't know if this happens to y'all. I'm working downstairs in my house and I think of something upstairs and I stand up and walk to the top of stairs and forget why I came. Have y'all ever forgotten something in that short a span? This is what Jesus is talking about. The same response to his word. Uh, that sounds interesting, but you walk out of the door of RUF, you walk out of the door, you walk out of reading scripture, you walk out of church, you walk out of the places where you encounter God's word, and there's nothing there. You actually forgot why you were even there. Right? So there's no impact or no retention. But secondly, another way I think the hard soil manifests itself is there's no challenge. And what I mean by that is we hear the word, but we refuse to let its implications challenge us. We refuse to let it beneath the surface and shift things around in our heart 
and the soil of our heart. And in Jesus' ministry, His words, the words of the kingdom, disrupt every single kind of person He encounters. Jesus completely unnerves the liberals and the progressives because He welcomes into His family religious conservatives and corrupt government officials. Not the progressives' favorite group of people. But He also unnerves the conservatives and the far right because He welcomes the prostitute. Jesus tells a man that to be saved, he has to sell everything he has and follow him. Jesus says, in my kingdom, the people who are blessed will be the people that are poor in spirit and the people who are meek. Jesus says, go identify the most justifiably revolting person in your life and love them. Love your enemy. Jesus says, no one will be saved by law keeping. Jesus says, I will uphold every single stroke of the law. The words of the kingdom never allow us to remain comfortable. They are always disruptive. Seeds are disruptive. And if your faith and your Christian experience is only ever affirming and it's never challenging, if there isn't tension, if there isn't paradox, if there isn't questions, then you have heard but you've not understood. Here's simple application. Try this this week. When you encounter the text, go read something, anything. Ask yourself, what is Matthew saying? Ask yourself, what is Isaiah telling us? What is Jesus saying? What is Paul saying? And remove from your vocabulary these words. To me it means. When that crops up in your mind, just get rid of it. And don't allow yourself to answer it that way. Or, I just feel like it means. Those things aren't always wrong, but oftentimes I find that we use those phrases to actually twist Scripture so that it doesn't challenge us. If you're a Christian, let the story challenge and offend you and upset you. If you're a skeptic, let the stories challenge your understanding of Christianity. Don't deal in caricatures. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City that I quote all the time in here, says this. He says, usually when people describe the God they reject... I find that I don't believe in the God they describe either, uh, either because they almost never describe the God of the Bible. That's the hard soil. The hard soil, there's either no retention or there's no challenge. Or the rocky soil. What does Jesus say about the rocky soil? He hears the word, receives it with joy, but has no root in himself, endures for a little while, then tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, and he immediately falls away. This is the Bible as a TED Talk, Right? Immediately inspired. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. It actually even says there's an emotional response of joy. But there's no depth. How do you know there's no depth? Because there will be times and places in your life that following Christ and living in the kingdom will cost you. And a mature understanding of the gospel is not revealed nearly as much by the joy you express. And a lot of times we think that's what a mature understanding of the gospel will manifest itself. No, right here it says there might be a lot of joy. Rather, a mature understanding of the gospel is revealed in your reaction to suffering. That's the most sound uh, guide or metric. Jesus doesn't intend to make our life easy. If we read the New Testament, if we read what he talks about in the life of a Christian... He doesn't intend to make your life easy. He intends to make you wise and strong in Him. 
He actually promises trials in John 16.33. There will be trials so that you can learn to be the kind of person that takes heart. James promises in his letter that there are going to be trials and suffering. And he says, when trials and suffering come, actually consider it joy because the suffering is going to be the place that Jesus grows in you maturity, strength, and wisdom. This past weekend in the conference uh, at Fall Getaway, Chad pointed out that Christianity actually flourished and continues to flourish to this day in cultures where there is more suffering and persecution than our first world context. Trials have always been a way that God matures us and cultivates intimacy with Him. Suffering surprises us, not because God failed, but because we tried to map our consumer culture expectations onto the kingdom. The consumer culture says, if I achieve or acquire enough, I can minimize or mitigate all the sadness in my life. And so then, when sadness comes, because we've tried to map the kingdom onto consumer culture, we're surprised and we think God failed us when God's been explicit There's trial, there's suffering, there's persecution in following Him. And sadness is actually the place where God's going to grow you the most. It will be the negative, disruptive experiences that A, bring you into deeper intimacy and dependency on God, and B, grow you into a person of wisdom and strength. The rocky soil missed that part. The hard soil, there's no retention. Uh, There's no challenge. There's the rocky soil who hears the Word with joy but doesn't, can't survive suffering. Then there's the thorny soil, the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the soil we have to think about the most here, right? Do you, does anybody here feel hurried? This is week five. Does anybody feel anxious? Does anybody feel like there's some of these, this stuff going on right now? Right? What if the solution to that is not becoming a master of handling all the urgent demands? What if the solution is actually growing in wisdom to evaluate the urgent demands, to see inside of yourself why these things create anxiety in you? And then what, in fact, are the things that you can let go of? So that you can go and tend to the the unurgent Important things. Things like virtue, things like character, things like joy, contentment, love. Those are things that can only be cultivated by valuing small, important, unurgent moments today. Valuing those things over the cares of the world, the things that are screaming for your attention, producing anxiety and threatening you. He calls it the deceitfulness of riches. And riches applies to more than just money. These are the things that are always promising rest and joy, but they're never delivering. Right? Just when you think you're crossing the finish line to rest. right? You just have to get into Stanford. Then you can rest. Then you got here. You realize, I just have to get through midterm season. I have to get through finals. I have to get to my major. I have to get to internships. I have to get to graduation. I have to get a job. I have to find a spouse. We want to have kids. We've got to find the right place to live. Public schools are dicey. We've got to save up for private school. That's really hard. Got to get them to college. Got to figure out a way to get them to college. Right? Got to pay for their weddings. Do you see the finish line is always before you? You will never cross it and you will never have rest. 
one of the famous quotes about German reformer Martin Luther, which actually in a couple of days we're going to celebrate the 500th anniversary of him nailing the 95 Thesis on the wall, which is pretty cool. Um, actually, a week from today. Uh, he says this about, someone asked him about his busy days, and this is the quote attributed to him. On the busy days, I work, work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. Here's what I would invite you to consider. Maybe busyness and anxiety is the blinking light on the dashboard calling you to prayer and meditation, telling you that you need more prayer and meditation, not less. The thorny soil. The Later, right? I'll get to it later. After today, after this week, after midterms, after this quarter, next year, after college, the words later and after are the words in the posture of the thorny soil. I'll get to this later, after midterms. I'll get to this after this quarter, my senior year after college. That's the thorny soil. Later and after are the words that mark it. Lastly, the good soil. He teaches us how to listen. The good soil is a soil that hears the word and understands it. Several times all throughout Jesus' ministry, he compares the words of the kingdom to a seed. Seeds are small. They seem insignificant, but they're powerful. But their power is always concealed. And its power is released slowly over time, but it has the power to break stone. And it has the power to replicate itself 30 and 60 and 100 times. So what does it mean a good soil is a heart that understands? The text actually really doesn't define what good soil is. It simply says you'll know it when you see it because it produces fruit. It it runs deep. The seed goes deep. It germinates and it pushes things around and it rearranges the soil and over time it produces fruit. And what I want you to consider for a moment is this, is your life, the life you're aiming at, is the fruit of the words and the stories that you take into your inmost self. This is true for everyone, Christian or not. They grow there. They sit there. They are the thing that are telling you what is worthwhile. They tell you what flourishing and success look like. They tell you what to aspire to. They tell you what failure is. They fuel your imagination for your life. You have a complex story of what it looks like to successfully be you. It was planted deep in you, and there were a lot of authors to that story, and there were a lot of editors altering it. And those stories have taught you what is good and what is bad and who you should be and shouldn't be in the world. It's hard to encounter that story because it feels so essentially you. To actually step back and ask yourself, why do I think that is good? You always assumed most of the good things and never wondered, oh, actually, something taught me to think that is good. Something taught me to think that is bad. Something taught me to think that was wise. Something taught me, a story taught me what was foolish. And wisdom, one aspect of wisdom is being able to see and honestly consider the words that you've taken into your inmost self. And this is hard to do because a lot of the times we're, we, are, we describe our most important story and it's kind of, there's a dissonance between the story we describe and what's really in us. And it's helpful to actually have honest friends that can say, you describe this story, but your life actually more looks like this story. 
But wisdom begins when you can honestly consider the words you've taken into your most self and to see and ask, are they selfish? Are they fundamentally self-oriented? Is your, does your story produce evil? Is your story unfair to others? Is it foolish? Can you see if there is a way your story denies dignity of others? To see if your story is false? To see if the words inside of you are culturally conditioned? There can be lies there. There can be toxic words, toxic words there. If you've ever gone to therapy, you know that a lot of what has warped us is sometimes the words that the most powerful people have implanted in our hearts. Do you know your words? Do you know the stories? Your animating story. Can you be honest? Because that is the thing that is making you and unmaking you every day. And it's not just the things said to us, but it's also the stories that are portrayed before us that we latch on to. When we see people whose stories we want to embody, admiration is the word we use for seeing someone whose story we want to take on and embody. The good soil is the heart that takes Jesus' words and let those words challenge, replace, and redeem the stories that we hold in our inmost self. And actually, in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen, if we'd read, if you'd been reading Matthew's Gospel, you would have seen examples of good soil, and it's not who we would expect. The good soil is the heart that no longer believes it has all the answers. The good soil is the tax collector, the corrupt government official, it's the prostitute. It's the sick, it's the lame, it's the hungry, it's the possessed. These are people who, like last week, who are at the end of themselves. They're the people in whom Jesus' words take root and transform. And it's always the self-satisfied and the sure and the proud that is the hard soil. The soft soil is made soft by some combination, Chad talked about this this weekend, by some combination of honesty and suffering and wisdom and humility. And the reality is, everybody in this room will come to the end of themselves if you haven't already. And you can either do it now, Chad talked about this this weekend, you can do it now with honesty and wisdom and humility, or it will be forced upon you on your deathbed. We will encounter the end of ourselves, everyone. The good soil is a heart that recognizes and grieves and comes to Jesus weary of its own limits and its own weaknesses and its own corruptions. So those are kind of the four ways Jesus talks about listening, the three ways we can avoid that upper right con, uh, quadrant. And one way that he begins to talk about listening. And I wanted to kind of close with a little bit of a meditation on then what is he saying? What, are we, what do we hear from him? And he explains the parable in verse 19. He says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. The seed, he describes as the word of the kingdom. What is that? First of all, what you need to know is Jesus talks about the kingdom more than anything else. He talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven more than he talks about the cross, more than he talks about sin, more than he talks about grace, more than he talks about the resurrection. All the big things actually all are encompassed under his broader theme of the kingdom. That's what he talks about, Mark 1.15. Jesus came preaching the good news. Gospel means good news. What is the good news? The kingdom of God is at hand. Luke 8, Jesus went through the cities and villages bringing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. Matthew four twenty three, Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Every time the gospels introduce Jesus' teaching ministry, they all say, Jesus started talking about the kingdom. First, what, is, what does it mean 
when it says the gospel of the kingdom. That's not here in this text, but every other place in the gospels when it's called the kingdom, it's called the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. And this is really important. This distinction I'm about to make is vital. It is the difference between life and death. Jesus comes announcing good news. That's what the word gospel means. It is an announcement of news of something done. He does not come leading with good advice. Here's what advice does. Advice changes you from the outside in like a mold. Advice says, hey, you need to do this and you've got to stop doing that. And if you do the right things and if you stop doing the wrong things, advice says modify your behavior and maybe you'll get the reward. It relies on the fear of missing out, the fear of failure, the hope of being good enough to get you to its threshold. Advice works from the outside in. It doesn't change the heart. It changes the exterior like a mold pressing you into a certain way of living from the outside. That's what good advice does. That's not what Jesus comes bearing. He comes bearing good news. News changes you from the inside out. News is the announcement of something done on your behalf. It absolutely changes the way you live, but it changes you from the inside out. If I said, hey, y'all all need to be more generous. You need, really need to be more generous. What we'd all feel like is like, man, it's really right. I should really do that. And we're all going to try to be a little bit more generous next week. But it's kind of frustrating and we feel bad about ourselves. Right? We're trying to work from the outside in. If I said, hey, everybody in here that has educational debt, a wealthy donor has agreed to pay for all of it for you. That's the announcement of good news. And it induces generosity in you in a totally different way. It works from the inside out. It inspires you to be a new and different kind of person. Jesus comes preaching good news, not good advice. So within what is the news about the kingdom? And this is... This is the theme of Jesus' teaching, so we can't summarize. It's hard to summarize. And kingdom is maybe language we don't think in or we don't use, but the concept of kingdom is actually very much present in all of our lives. Because your kingdom, your kingdom, everybody's got one, is where you rule. You rule your space, actually physical space around you. You rule your body. You rule your possessions. It's the range of power and influence that you have around you. But here's the thing. Every, every single unpleasant thought, every unpleasant action, every unpleasant feeling that you experience interpersonally, so in a relationship with someone else, any kind of relationship, between you and anyone else, it originates in the fact that your kingdom, you trying to order the world a certain way, and their kingdom, them trying to order the world a certain way, bump into each other. Right? We discover this in the freshman roommate situation. Right? It's basically the UN in there. There's not one ounce of interpersonal displeasure whose origin is not in the fact that I have my kingdom and the way I think it should go and you have your kingdom and the way you should think it should go. And the good news is that God is king. And the only way to peace and hope is not if you get to rule the way you want. The good news is our God reigns. In your kingdom, your identity, your worth, your status are always precarious. Under God's rule, none of those things are ever threatened. Even the worst things, sin, suffering, failure, falling short, shame, 
cannot diminish your status in His kingdom. That's good news. He reigns. There are two ways to live in His world. He's creator. This is His world. There are two ways to live. We can live as an enemy of God, and an enemy of God just means that you still believe you're the ruler. Or you can live in submission to God's rule, delighting that He is the good king. And there's, there's certainly more to the kingdom than just that, but that's a start. God reigns. That's good news. That means He upholds the righteous. That means He holds evil accountable. That means He comes near to the lonely. That means He gives peace to the anxious. That means He's slow to anger and He abounds in steadfast love. In His kingdom, when you submit to His rule, you can rest. Because in His kingdom, your value is not determined by your productivity. In His kingdom, you can turn the other cheek because He's in charge and He promises to handle justice for you. In His kingdom, you can give generously because your wealth is not in things but in His abundant love. In His kingdom, there's no more fear. Because fear is actually the thing. The the origin of fear is kind of mysterious and kind of not. Fear is the product of intuitively knowing that you can't trust the goodness or the power of the one who you believe is ruling everything. And because we're all trying to rule everything, there's something in us that's telling you, I'm not sure you're good and and I know that I don't have power. And so we live in fear. When we submit to the kingship of Jesus, His goodness and His power push out fear. And when we begin to wrestle with this, and this is the question that it's appropriate to kind of land on, is, well, how can I know that I can trust Him? How, did I know, how do I know that I can trust God as King? If I'm going to give up the rule of my life to Him, how can I trust Him? How can you know How can you know that tomorrow, when the temptation to harden our hearts, right? The temptation to run from the words because it's hard. The temptation to let the vines of worldly cares choke out the good news of the kingdom. How can we be sure? How can we be like Paul in Romans 8 when he says, Neither death nor life, nor midterms, nor club meetings, nor angels or rulers, no boyfriends or girlfriends, ex-boyfriends or ex-girlfriends, things are present or things to come. Your day-to-day or the feelings and anxiety you feel about the future. Neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation. How do you know none of those things can separate you from the love of God in Christ? How can you be sure? How can you be sure? Because you all are capable to do a lot of great things and make your life pretty comfortable for a while. And so to submit to God's rule is a big ask. Well, this is how Paul is sure. He says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. This is the way my dad expressed that principle. He said, Son, the stocks that I pay the most attention to are the ones that I put most money in. When I buy $100 worth of a stock, I never pay attention to it. When I put $200,000 into a stock, I look at it every day and give tons of care to it. And he told that to me because he said, When you invest yourself in your wife, the more you invest yourself in your wife, the more you're going to love her. He who didn't spare his own son for you, how will he not also graciously give you everything you need? That is Paul saying, God has bought you from sin and from the grave at the cost of his son's life. He deeply cares for you. He's deeply invested in you. He paid the most for you. God's rule, however mysterious and confounding it may be, you can trust his will and you can trust his reign because he gave his own life for you. 
You can trust His Word because He gave His own life for you. You can trust people's love for you only as much as they are willing to suffer for you. And God showed that He is willing to suffer the most. He's willing to go to the grave because He loves you. We're constantly trying to impose our kingdom on the world around us using power. He inaugurates His kingdom with sacrifice and service. And if you take those stories about His kingdom to your inmost self, it will completely transform the kind of person you are. This weekend uh, at the Fall Retreat, Chad kept uh, ending the talks with really emotional stories about fathers. Anybody notice that theme? It got me going on all my emotional stories about my father, so I'm going to do the same, so y'all bear with me. Uh, I remember the very first time I went on a sleepover as a kid. I went to my cousin Leslie's house. Uh, he lived over by Cherokee Bend Elementary. And Dad drove me over there, and he said, you know, if you want to come home, all you have to do is call, I'll come and get you. And I called him that night, and he came and got me. Because that first sleepover, you know, sleepovers, a lot of, about 30% of them go bad at some point. But <laughs> that's another thing. Uh, every sleepover from then on, you know, if you want to come home, all you have to do is call me, and I'll come and get you. When I went to summer camp, you know, if you want to come home, you can call me, and I'll always come and get you. When I went to soccer camp, you know, if you want to come home, you can call me and I'll always come and get you. When I went to college, you know. If you want to come home, you can call me and I'll always come and get you. I remember my older brother, who at the time was like 22, 20, 22 or 23, right around then, uh, used to race bicycles and had a horrendous accident in Mississippi. And my dad chartered a plane and flew to Mississippi and picked him up and brought him home. And I, I'm 39-year-old, father of four. My kids are in middle school, right? I'm an adult. I'm not a child, not a child anymore. Y'all, come on. Right? <laughs> I know that if Elizabeth and I needed his help, we could call him tonight and he would be here tomorrow. Those words have power not just because they're nice to hear. They have power because they're true. Their power lies in the fact that they're true. If they're good but not true, then we're fools. And if they're true but not good, then we're hopeless. Those words took root deep in my heart. They germinated, they sprouted, they went into my inmost self, and they've done two things. They have confirmed to me that my Father will come for me no matter what it cost Him, no matter what time of day. And now I get all the confidence and security that comes with that. But here's the other thing it did. He taught me how to be a father. And I got a lot of work to do. But I have those words sitting down in my heart, germinating, thinking about how I'm going to relate to my daughters tomorrow. His words reproduce him in me. The seed reproduces itself 30, 60, 100 fold. Christ's love for you, when it takes root, reproduces. Christ in you. And His love for you then overflows in like manner to those around you. The words of the kingdom are good, they are also true. And that's the good news that our God reigns. Let's pray.